Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome again to Just Sustainability, curious conversations about sustainability, equity, and social justice. Before we get started, I should note, both to provide some context and to serve as a disclaimer, that was really windy the day that I interviewed Hyde, so there's some weird volume fluctuations throughout the recording. I tried to adjust the levels while I was editing, but I couldn't get everything evened out perfectly, so I wanted to give you some advanced warning. Anyhow, on to the episode. The previous episode of Just Sustainability ended with Hyde Erdrich and I talking about how she approaches teaching folks to more effectively tell their stories. This episode begins with us talking about the importance and joyfulness of leaving room for the unexpected. Here's that conversation. So how do you think about, like, making learning fun? Because when I think about, like, relationships between parents and kids, kids are often like, well, why would I want to do this thing? I don't want to do it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's quite clear that your son that I know is really interested in the same things you are. And so somehow you manage to make the thing that could have very easily been like, oh, it's the the weird thing (laughs) my mom does. Do something that's really deeply important to him. Well, thank you for that. You know, like, if you're a parent, you're always thinking, did I actually do anything? But (laughs) no, I mean, it's good that you did. So just curious, like. I don't know. I mean, I, honestly, one of my modes in life is to do things sort of unconsciously. My favorite card in the tarot deck is the fool, where yeah. they're just wandering off with looking back, you know, right, right. and the world is spreading out before them. They could be going off a cliff or they could be going into some amazing new land, you know. Right. So I just, I like to try not to think about it um, and to move forward with that. I'm sure that there's philosophy on what the whole attitude is, but um, like, you know, my, my daughter, uh, yeah. she, she works in theater tech and, her dad and I are not handy. We are just not right, handy. Right. So when she started, like, you know, using power tools and building stuff, <laughs> we were like, what the heck? Where did you come from? She said, Mom, you dragged me to every art opening you ever curated. I've seen right. and seeing people working with tools and building installations since I was tiny. And I was oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't know what you're teaching your kids for yeah. good and for bad. You know, you just don't know. Yeah. So uh, that, that grabbed her attention and that's what she's committed to. So yeah. yeah. I think I think that's part of it, but also just I try to I I am a fun junkie. Yeah, I like to have fun. If it's not fun, I might not do it. I'm you know the typical uh, neuroatypical I guess <laughs> person. Like I have to be engaged and I have to enjoy it and I have to have fun and I have to have some verbal component to it. So I guess you know if that if that's one of my kids' neurology, they'll they'll yeah. they'll vibe with that. Uh, what I hear is like making space for exploration, not being too sort of concerned about the particular path and then just sort of exploring. Yeah. You know, um, I think that's how you get the good stuff. You just wander. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, just like berry picking or mushroom (laughs) hunting. Yeah. Yeah. Just take a walk in the woods. Yeah. I'm just taking a walk in the mental woods or the philosophical woods or the academic woods, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And see what you find. Yeah. Well, I think about random chance a lot. I follow chains of information when I'm researching, when I'm planning a course, when I'm starting a project. And I, you know, I try to go deeper each time. You know, I'm reading something 
in a scientific article that I find online and I like it. Then I look at the footnotes. Then I go find the study. Then I, you know, read the notes in the study and find the sources for the study and that sort of thing. And I've even had to teach myself how to read, you know, pretty scientific work, especially for the cookbook to find out about, you know, the, 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 properties of foods, uh, where people found them, when they found them. Like sometimes people write something today from a study from the seventies when the government actually paid for these studies. And, you know, we wonder, does it even relate to today with the fast, um, growing, uh, changes, you know, with the sudden changes, does a 1970s study about how much, you know, uh, nutrition is in a berry or, a uh, Right. Or, is a, still true? or a perennial grain, you know, is it still going to be true? Right. Uh, so, but I mean, I just, I like to do that. And I had to teach myself how to read those things because that wasn't, it's not my training. Yeah. <laughs> Medical studies when I was studying DNA and yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it's just a challenge. It's an increasing challenge the deeper I go. Right. And, but, I, but I have a, a doctorate in interdisciplinary research that was pretty wide open. So I, I learned that. While we're on the topic of random mental walks in the woods, at this point in time, our conversation took an unplanned left turn when something made me mention that cooking seems to me to be really similar to poetry. My random interjection prompted Hyde to talk about food and how cooking are ways that people tell stories, transmit culture, and anchor their relationships. To me, it seems like making a dish is similar to a poem. Or, yeah, or a story. People would like, I mean, even Sean Sherman said yeah. a story is, I build a story on a plate, right? Right, right. You know, and a, to me, when I would ask people for a recipe, they would give me a story. They right. wouldn't give me a recipe. I'd yeah. have to work that out for myself. They may tell me the ingredients. Right. They had no idea how to tell me how to make things for the most part. Very few people knew exactly how to make a recipe. So that part was all my research and, yeah. you know, no, that's actually ex- experimentation. No, you say that, it makes me think of, like, cooking with my grandmother. Right. Right. So, like, uh, my grandmother... Uh, is this wonderful cook. Uh, she's in her 90s, still, like, right, cooks every single meal for herself. Every time I visit, right, it's just, it's all, it's all food, right? We, yeah. we, in the morning. That's uh, her language. Yeah, yeah, we go yeah. to her garden, then we come back and she'll make lunch, then we'll go to the grocery store because she has a corner grocery store. She'll get, she'll be like, what do you want to eat? And we'll just wander around oh, and find food. Oh, then wonderful. We take it home, then she'll cook something. And so I want to learn these recipes, right? Because she's 90 something and I, I want to keep those sort of family recipes. Uh, and then anytime I ask you how to make something, it's just like, uh, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, I go see, you know, like, I, I'll, I'll buy a fish and I'll like, what do I have at home to have with a fish? And like, well, how do you flavor it? Like, what's the, like, how much salt? How much whatever? And like, right. I don't know. Right. Uh, committing to like a mem, like, uh, ha- doing it the same way twice yeah. was really hard for me. And I had to do each one of them at least three times and feed it to other people. So I knew it wasn't just my taste. Right. Oh my gosh. My husband did everything. He was, cause I had, you can't write and cook at the same time you burn no. stuff yeah yeah yeah. so i would you know try it once without anything just take some ma- minor notes right. and then i would have him do it while i took more notes right and then we would you know usually do it together to right. see if we could recreate the results and, and feed it out to people to see what they thought yeah but it was i mean it was impossibly difficult because i didn't want to do it the same way over and over again right, right, right. it's very it is very much like about what's happening what's fresh what 
you know, and so it, it's really just a snapshot. And people don't even follow recipes that way. They just, no. they add stuff, they subtract stuff, they see what they've got in the fridge. So, well, yeah, know. recipes are like oral traditions. They right? are definitely yeah. oral traditions. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, because uh, I think they're best when they're organic, right? Yeah. They grow, and then I think that growth reflects something about the moment. Yeah, and then I think we all, I think actually our palates are tuned to that because we're supposed to be eating with the seasons anyhow. So I think that's one of the reasons that yeah. we. That we get, um, you know, and then also I think that there's a lot of communication between people that we don't know about what somebody might need. Like, you know, uh, I'll never forget, like, there's like top, you know, probably 100 meals that were meaningful to me in my life. And one of them was... I was traveling. I was out in San Francisco. Yeah. I was really tired. I wasn't feeling my best. And, uh the people we were staying with said, well, let's not go out to dinner. And I was like, perfect. I'll just have a cup of tea. And then the next thing I knew, um, my host had made this beautiful bowl of just vegetable broth, cabbage and tofu. Yeah. And it cured me. (laughs) I don't, maybe there was ginger in there. I don't know. Whatever (laughs) there was, it cured me. And she's like, I just knew you needed this soup. Right, Right. Right. And so, so I think there's a lot like when you're, cooking with people too right. that you are doing to to heal them help them right um you know make their day go well and um, you know i i wish i did more of that i don't i don't do that very much it's yeah. it's not possible i'm i'm no. i don't have that kind of energy for every day so even though people read the cookbook i'm like i don't cook all this stuff every day <laughs> well i know i mean i think that's one of the sad things right so i do think we've lost communal dining or like even like family dining. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think our days used to center around collectively eating. Yeah. And preparing. Yeah. Like, you know, come home at noon, start this. And I mean, my parents did that. They, you know, um, and like the other thing is I couldn't get m- my kids to like soup. Really? Like, soup is like the center of my life, you know. <laughs> it's like what soup today? And <laughs> it's huh. so easy and you can start it later in the day and you can – but. But kids don't get soup at school. They don't. Yeah. It's just not. It's passing out of Amer- the American palate. Like what drive-through has soup? No, that's true. <laughs> no, no, it's true. Like when I think soup, I do think my grandparents. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's easy. It takes all day long. You, you yeah. know, if you to make a, a good soup or it can. Yeah. You know, and and it's like you're talking and you're putting things into it and you're coming and going and the house smells good you know so i'm like i love soup season yeah and i just keep making it and hoping that they'll one day go that smells delicious <laughs> and love soup and they'll be like why have i never eaten soup before <laughs> I, I, i'll imagine i imagine that at some point right like they'll be reminiscent about soup <laughs> well i did force them like when they were little you just have two tablespoons you know yeah yeah and you know that's a, actually a lot of nutrition in two tablespoons of a vegetable soup of some sort so yeah. i was like that's cool yeah. <laughs> when they were little and then at some point i just let it go continuing on our amble through our mental woods uh, hyde noted that it was a topic that she wanted to talk about but that i had not broached namely equity and the tendency within our culture to undervalue the arts this topic she thought was important because artists play an important role facilitating our social discourse. I also do a lot of work with institutions around performance yeah. and uh, visual art. And okay. that uh, that is huge equity issues and access issues for me. And also sustainability to a large extent because the audience is generally older and white. Right. So, you know, what is going to happen? Practices in terms of sustainable uh uh, products being used in art is yeah. a huge part of 
what the artists I work with do. They are very careful to make sure that they're not doing harm when they use products. They, you know, trying to be careful about uh, toxic substances, about make sure that their work can be recycled or yeah. reused. Um, so that sort of thing is really important in the artists I work with. And then the institutions providing uh, <clears throat> access and equity is yeah. really important because nonprofit employees are getting paid full time and the right. artists are not. not. Yeah. And it's just a huge problem. It's like adjunct work or temporary yeah. uh, contingent faculty in, in higher ed. It's the exact yeah. same thing. You are absolutely utterly dependent on the work of people who are living at poverty level for the yeah. most part. Well, I, I think art is how we as a society think through our values. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, when folks don't have access to the capacity to create and disseminate, mm -hmm. I think it limits the ways that we as a society can think about who we are. Yeah. So I do, yeah, I agree. I think that's deeply important. Yeah, I think so too. And it's not, not a part of what I do. I do perform my poetry. Um, yeah. So it, it is something that I think about a lot and uh, that I'm really engaged with. And it doesn't feel like separate from the other things. I mean, that's the other yeah. thing. I couldn't do it if it felt separate. I would start to go crazy. I always <laughs> use the, um, the analogy of the caterpillar that, you know, you don't even want to think how it puts on its socks. Right, right. And if it did, if it thought about it, it couldn't do it. Right, you know? right. <laughs> so what, is, so uh, what are some ways you think that we can improve equity when it comes to the art so that i mean there's some element of ensuring that we have some better like kind of economic and financial supports for artists but like well yeah and usually what's considered an economic or financial support for artists goes to the institution like 90 percent right. of it and Over, i think that in people terms of grants. right they really have to think about that they have to think yeah. about how um how fair it is to right. to ask an artist to produce something that is a huge part of their budget and right. That person is going to leave either either in the hole right, or right. Uh, with barely sustaining themselves, right. and that's true for, of all levels of artists, you know, up to the very well paid. Uh, who often it's a, the better paid you are, the bigger artists you are, the more you have to pay to be that artist. Right. And people have to be really selective because they may actually go out of pocket. And so I just think that there is just, I mean, it's not even just equity, it's ethics, right. like the ethics of that, that you could sit there getting your benefits, getting, you know, healthcare, having uh, time off, uh, right. you know, paid lunches and so forth and ask somebody to come in and do work for you that you don't offer to pay them for. That is really, that's a big issue. Just even 25 bucks for walking in the door, pay people's parking, Right. make sure that you don't take up more time, you know, that you don't pay for. If they have to prep for two hours before a meeting, you pay them for the prep. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then just slowly upping the actual fees that artists get because they will settle. We, yeah, I'm yeah. an artist too. We will settle for very little. We have we have a mission that is not right. economic. But while we're doing this in tremendous service for everybody of helping them keep in touch with their dreams and yeah. their uh, giving them something to to throw their own consciousness up against and yeah. and time to examine it, you know, that's a huge thing. That's sort of like a priestly thing to do. Yeah. And we are not respected that way and we are not uh given that sort of <laughs> Uh, support. Yeah, we don't have a house. We don't have a. <laughs> we don't have a space where we can perform. We don't. You well, know. Yeah. No. There's a terrible devaluing of the arts, right? Like yeah. I think we don't appreciate the role of arts within our society. Yeah, I right? think so too. And I think that I mean, 
It also is really important because often these are leaders in thoughts about what is facing us. And yeah. and I haven't read an art proposal or even a book proposal in 10 years that isn't about sustaining our life on this planet. Right. I mean, there's some level of that in almost everything. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's in the zeitgeist, right? I think we don't talk about it publicly, but I think, right, I think there is the sense, I think there's a general sense of unease about like yeah. where the world is and like, and if right, people, you know, came from 20 years in the future, right. God willing, as they say, <laughs> um, or, you know, 20 years in the past, if we looked at our obsessions right now, it would be very clear that yeah. we feel very much on the edge of doom. So, yeah. So, I mean, hopefully that will be like something that you look back on and the way, you know, we looked back on writers from the First World War and, and the lost generation. We understand that they've also felt that sense yeah. you know um but uh right now that is where we are being keyed toward actually paying attention to what we need to pay attention to and you know and like i said even when it looks like more money is going into the arts it often is going into arts administration i made more money as an arts administrator than i ever made as a writer until just recently Hyde and i then turned to the subject of grass um both about how our society's obsession with manicure and lawns is not sustainable but also how grass is sort of a metaphor for colonialism. Here's that exchange. So when I decided to come out to Morris, I had a, I thought I'd bring some of my obsessions with me, and one of them was I starting to think about grass and how humans have used grass over yeah. the centuries, and you know what it means that we're going to be more grass friendly in our climate and in, in North America. Right. Um, how to understand and be part of grasslands again. Yeah. Um, is really, you know, I grew up near the national grasslands in North Dakota. It's a big part of my childhood memory and my love, my prairie girl love. Yeah. So I was thinking about that. So I brought a couple of grass baskets with me to just have around and I thought I was going to use them with the students and we were going to talk about that. They're reading braiding sweetgrass. This is a little ball of sweetgrass from, from the garden. Yeah, you know, yeah. we went and from the Morris, uh, the Circle Nations Garden in yeah. here. So, so I, you know, and I was going to do that, but we never really quite got there. Um, these are from all over the world. Um, they're old. They're from maybe the mid-century. Yeah. Sweet grass basket from northwest, northeast coast or northeast United States. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so I was like, you know, I was really thinking about these things. And then after I was here for a while, <clears throat> after I was in Morris... I started to look around me and it started in an irritation. The irritation okay. was that the place I live, which is lovely, and I've truly enjoyed having my own apartment. It's just wonderful. It's surrounded by grass. It's a massive, massive field of grass. And at first, when I got here, the grass was tall and part of it. And there right. were, you know, butterflies and frogs. And yeah, I opened yeah. the windows and it was just beautiful. And I felt really at home. And then they started mowing, and they never stopped mowing until the grass was completely dormant. It was an onslaught of mowers, constant, 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 because, you know, out on the prairie, you got to mow grass if you don't want it tall. And for some reason, the, in the middle of, you know, not the middle, but, you know, close to the campus, there's this massive field, and it seems mysterious to me that it has to be mowed. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't understand that. And then, so there's a constant noise too, and I'm really sensitive to noise. So I'm trying to concentrate and there's like the noise of the mowers and 
And then, you know, walking around campus, I looked at all the grass here too. And, and I, a lot of it is mowed. Really, it's mowed, it's sprayed. Yeah. And I thought, you know, for a campus with a sustainability program, this is something of yeah. interest to me. Well, the the pri- like sort of primacy yeah. of grass. Yeah. And not a grass people can eat or use to do anything with. No. Except for walk over, and then you're not supposed to walk on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. And I think we sometimes we talk about being on the prairie a lot. And uh, there's so little actual prairie around here. So uh, yeah, we are we, we're covered in trees. Um, all the grass are like right are European species. Mm-hmm. We, I think we have a few patches of like tall grasses. Um, yeah, there's some little mo like areas, no mow areas yeah. that people have worked on, but they're right next to the the playing fields, which are sprayed. Yeah, yeah. So there's the drift of spray to be considered. Yeah. You know, there's yeah, yeah. No, I I, I I share the same feeling. I I've. I'm lucky enough to have kind of a, a small house on a big plot of land kind of on the edge of town. And so, like, people – it's easy to get ignored by people. So, like, the city doesn't get mad at me for, like, not mowing as much. So, like, I keep the front yard, which is, like, facing the highway, sort of mowed so that, like, you know, the neighbors don't get mad at me and or so the city doesn't come by and, like, you know, find me or something. But the back, I've been trying to, like, get as feral as possible. <laughs> right. And, and uh, yeah, so, like, so we've been at that house for two or three years now and uh, – Right this year, like it was just full of life because it's for three years, it just sort of let it like do its thing. I mean, there's some invasive species, so I'm gonna have to go through there and like pull stuff. Sure, yeah, you don't want to start a, a giant hogweed, whatever no. infestation is that what they call it? The one that they're uh, know, there's some big weed, that yeah, I'm not sure what it is, but yeah, yeah. uh. But yeah, it's been it's been full of like you know monarchs this year. It's right, full of like yeah. toads and frogs, yeah. and there's like rabbits and the right there's snakes, there's salamanders. There's yeah, I um, mean that's how quickly that sort of uh, really diverse life yeah. can come back if you don't spray it and you let it grow. And so I was just really curious because I mean in the the American dream includes right. that mold yard, and, right, right. you know, behind the white picket fence, right? And right. so, I think that's a fundamental change that's going to have to happen. Yeah. People are going to have to stop using, you know, uh, lawn chemicals and uh, and uh, growing these monoculture yards that yeah. are just no good for anything. And I mean, it's really great when you don't have a monoculture yard. Yeah. You know, my yard is like primarily violets and sorrel and people complain but if i mow it they don't see it as much um you know i haven't gotten a ticket yet in the city but i can eat my yard yeah yeah yeah. you know and other things can eat it so we have a lot of diversity of animals you know foxes and possums and skunks well not skunks that often (laughs) i've seen foot in the in the winter i've seen their footprints but i've never smelled them i smelled one last night when i was walking my dog i was like oh uh, nope let's let's turn around there's a lot of skunks out here but i've seen (laughs) i've seen them um badgers you know like right outside of town so and i know there was one in the garden for a while so that's pretty good diversity if you've got that because they are voracious and they have to eat all sorts of things so but then you're also sequestering carbon if you grow your grass a little bit longer Uh you know and that makes a difference growing trees growing these are really literally simple solutions they make a huge difference and people can do them. They can encourage their municipalities to do it. Yeah. Instead of burning carbon to mow a lawn all the time, you could do something about that. Well, and I think it, there's also an interesting sort of equity issue too. So I, I think it, I think it changes our mindset when we decide to let the land be the land, yeah. right? Like I, I think there's, there's a really subtle colonial mindset of 
need to take the land and shape it. Right. The, shape right. it, tame it, make yeah, yeah. it, you know, something that we are comfortable with in terms of an image. Yeah. You know, so yeah. And I think, and I think about it as the primacy of, of grass, of lawn grass. <laughs> I do. I think, you know, here we are where grass grows. That's yeah, what it yeah. does. It has always done that here. But we never let the grasses from here grow. No. <laughs> it's sort of twisted. <laughs> yeah, right. Because we have European grasses that we grow in a, a really kind of structured institutional yeah. way. Monoculture, yeah. yeah. Yeah, And then that requires all the things that, you know, monocultures require so much more resource because yeah. they're, you know, because they, they don't have dependencies that plants yeah. naturally have. But man, if you just let it grow, it would help so much. It would yeah. change. I mean, there's the inclines here all the time. I'm like, why are there inclines over Morris? You know, fog and like, what the heck? <laughs> what, what is this even doing here? You know, maybe it's something about the exchange that it needs. It needs more. I don't know. There's yeah. something wrong with the environment. That no. Well, know. yeah. I mean, I, I think this entire content, right? Because we tried to shift it from what it uh, what it wants to be. Right. I mean, there were a million, uh, maybe hundreds of millions of large animals, yeah. bison that were churning up the soil, were sequestering carbon for millennia and when they died they made a dent in the carbon record you know same thing as when disease struck the hemisphere and people died in the in the millions if not billions and that made a because they stopped burning wood because there were yeah. fewer people that made a dent in the carbon record too so yeah. i mean we know people can do it by very simple activities and, yeah. and the regrowth of trees in the northeast have changed things uh there so we know these things can happen and we know like you're talking about kansas earlier the potawatomi going to kansas i think that's really fascinating because i was reading a little bit about new england and changes in new england and how some berry trees there have seemed to rebound yeah. uh, from early and late frosts which are a problem you know uh but they're because climate change is erratic. Like the first couple of years, they seem to just die and not produce berries. And then a few years later, they started to produce. Like these plants are pretty dang tough because they've already been through some of these changes to a certain extent. So that's really, I mean, it's hopeful. It's also something we can control. This brings us to the end of the conversation that I had with Hyde. I just want to leave you with one final thought that Hyde shared about what seemed to her as a key barrier to social change and how she believed we might overcome that barrier. That's why there's no action, is because people think that there's such a radical difference between one another. That always breaks down when you eat together, honestly. I think right. that's like one of the great things. Is like uh, One of my neighbors runs an organization called Marnita's Table, and the basic thing it does is bring people who are very different from one another together, and yeah. all they do is eat. They don't have... They just eat together. If they want, they can, you know, start some conversations from some little table cards, but they're not political. And it yeah. just, it changes fundamentally. It changes people. They yeah. do things that they wouldn't have done before yeah. because they're able to talk to one another across huge differences. As always, I hope you learned something from this episode. Why I took away from speaking with Hyde is the importance of allowing ourselves to explore and to free ourselves, at least on occasion, from our conventions and expectations. I also appreciated that Hyde asked me to think about the importance of the arts for thinking collectively about the direction of our society and the importance of ensuring that our artists are treated well and equitably. Finally, it brought me great joy that Hyde was able to surprise me a little bit and made me think about grass and how something so ubiquitous could be so meaningful. 
Anyhow, I'll sign off for now. Please join me again on the next episode of Just Sustainability, where we'll get to meet Sean Sherman, who's the James Beard award-winning chef and an advocate for indigenous foods and education. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute and the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.